Okay, good morning everyone. Good to see you all. Oh, still got music. Lovely to have you with us. Um, just got to ask before we get going, um, in light of the weather system over the last few days, has everyone still got their wheelie bins? What about, I, my family, we have a trampoline up back and everyone's still got their trampolines, which is probably a little bit more hairy. Ours is still there. I woke up in the morning, immediately opened the curtains, still there. <laughs> still there, wasn't three doors down, which is good. Fantastic. Thank you all for making your way. The weather seemed to have eased. It's just now wet, um, which is depressingly normal, isn't it? But there we go. We survived. We're good. All right. If you've got a Bible, please go to uh, Leviticus chapter 16, please. Leviticus chapter 16. Now, we are um, into our new sermon series. We start at the beginning of the year into his presence where we'll be going through the book of Leviticus. Um, and what we've seen thus far is that the book of Leviticus um, answers the question or deals with the man's greatest problem. How can sinful man, mankind, come into the presence of a holy God? Because mankind is sinful, which means we've fallen short of God's standard. We are infected by sin in all areas of our lives, and yet God is holy Holy set apart, he is other, he is different from us in every possible way, and sin and holiness cannot exist together. They are just diametrically opposed to each other. And we find in our Bibles in the beginning when God made uh, the heavens and the earth and he made Adam and Eve and put him in the garden, everything was good and everything was right, and man dwelt in the presence of God, and then uh, Adam and Eve rebelled separated from the presence of God, and we saw uh, the first few books of the Bible is about how God is restoring that relationship, and particularly the book of Leviticus, out of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the law, deals with this problem. In fact, it's the center of those five books, and what we've got today is we've come to the center of the central book, um, Leviticus chapter 16. So we've got the, um, the order. What we've done so we've talked about Leviticus, the structure of Leviticus, how it's done in a symmetrical pattern with chapter 16 being the center. And we've done the first five sections, sorry, first three sections, um, and now we're on to chapter 16. If you've missed them, you can catch up them online. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at chapter 16, which deals with an event called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. So we're going to look at the chapter, go through it, see what it meant for Israel, see how it points forward to Jesus, and then draw some application for us um, here now as 21st century believers and followers of Jesus. Now, the Day of Atonement was the most significant day in the calendar of the people of God, of Israel. It was actually, I read that often it was just referred to as the day. They didn't need to put any qualifiers by it. It was just, when in their calendar, it said, is the day coming? Where they had their countdown calendar, where they had 24 doors to open, the day was at the end. They needed nothing else. And it was the day of atonement. And it was the moment where God, in his grace and mercy, allowed um, man to come into his presence and dealt with the problem of sin for the nation of Israel. And it presumes that when you get to this, that you've read the first 15 chapters because all the stuff we've learned so far is involved in what we're doing now in chapter 16. So we've got the sacrifices that have come. Um, so you've got to have this, know about the sacrifice. We've got the institution of the priesthood. We looked in chapters 8, 9, and 10. So you need the priest to do the bits and pieces. And also what Matt looked at last week about being pure before God, living lives, daily purity, and becoming clean before God, that is also involved as well. So it all builds up to this. 
And what happens in the culmination is that man can now stand into the presence of God. Now, it's called the Day of Atonement. Atonement means literally at-one-ment. It means to bring back into relationship. It means reconciliation. It means that uh, sin has been paid for. And so man can now stand in God's presence. It means blood has to be shed to cover sin because sin is an offense to God and it needs to be punished and so blood must be shed. If you've read or listened to chapter 16 before today, you'll find actually the Day of Atonement as a phrase doesn't exist. It's actually mentioned in chapter 23 when we get to that and they talk about the calendar year of Israel. But it doesn't actually, it's not actually appearing in this passage. But the word atonement does, according to my count, 15 times. So as we go through a day, you might want to mark them off. I think it's 15 times it mentions atonement in chapter 16. And the reference to blood being shed, I think, is about nine times. So have a look at that. And we'll see through this that atonement is made for um, the high priest who goes into God's presence. That comes up four times. And for the people as a whole, that's mentioned three times. So that is the theme of this chapter. And what we'll find out is atonement is made for sin, for the punishment for sin, but also it is made uh, from the polluting effects of sin. So it's atonement is made for sin, but also from sin, and sin is removed from the people. And so what we're going to see is we're going to see uh, sacrifices offered, we're going to see cleansing come um, to the high priest, his family, the people of Israel, and even the tabernacle itself. So I put out a video which went out on social media, um, because you know I'm such an influencer, and it should have come through you via your life group leaders about the tabernacle. But if we put the look at the picture of the tabernacle, what we're going to be dealing with, we look at this each week, is you've got, what we're going to do is right at the end there where the glory cloud comes down, that's what we're talking about. That's called the most holy place or the holy of holies. The bit before it is the most holy place and then you have outside the courtyard of the tabernacle. And what's going to happen is the high priest is going to, through this day, enter the most holy place. He is literally going to go into the presence of God uh, where the Ark of the Covenant is. So that's what we're looking for. All right, big idea. Uh, For man to come into God's presence, sin must be dealt with by blood being shed. For man to come into God's presence, sin must be dealt with by blood being shed. So let's go through the passage. If you've got it with you, we're going to go through it in chunks. First chunk, verses 1 to 10, which is preparation for the day. The chapter begins... Um, by the Lord speaking to Moses. We know this is a divine command. This isn't a human institution where guys, men and women just got around and thought, let's do this, this will work. No, God has spoken to his people. This is how I want it. And he begins by referencing back to chapter 10 where we looked at the death of uh, Nadab and Abihu who were Aaron's sons who came into the presence of God um, basically and offered unauthorized fire. And we looked at kind of what that meant and they died as a result because they came into the presence of God without having sin dealt with and it all went horribly wrong for that. And so there's a reference to that. And so there are restrictions for entering the tabernacle. Not anyone can do it, and not at any time. Actually, the only person who can do it is the high priest on the Day of Atonement to go into that most holy place. And he says anyone who doesn't do that, anyone who disobeys will die because there is a restriction on God's presence because of his holiness and our sinfulness, which keeps that um, one apart from the other. The only other thing that will allow that is what we're going to look at today, where the high priest can come in, he can be the mediator between man and God, um, and deal with man's sin. So what does he do? Verses 3 to 6, he's, first he's got to prepare the offerings. There's got to be offerings to enter God's presence. And so he's got to bring a young bull 
uh, for a sin offering for the priests and then a ram for a burnt offering. We look at both of those in the first um, week of the series. And then he's got to wear holy garments. But this is, is an important note here. We looked at the priest and his holy, high priest in his holy garments and there were dead flesh, there were jewels on his chest. He had wore different robes. But on this day, he has to remove all them. And he basically comes in a simple white linen robe. And this is an act of contrition. It is an act of humility, saying actually one doesn't presume to enter God's presence. One comes when called, and one comes in humility. And he was also to get um, an offering from the, the people as well, which were two rams, or sorry, two goats, and then a ram for the burnt offering. And so there was a sin offering for the high priest, sin offering for the people, burnt offering from the high priest, burnt offering for the people. And then the, the two... Um, uh, goats were going to be the scapegoat. And if you've got my translation, a lot of other translations have this. Who's got the word Azazel in their, in their Bible? We'll come to that. That's the translation of the scapegoat. And we'll look at what that means with the two goats. So there's preparation. So you've got to get the offerings and the sacrifice ready. The priest has to get ready by wearing his garments. He's also got to bathe and get ready to enter God's presence. So that's the beginnings. Then part two. Verses 11, uh, 12, 13, 14, we have the offerings for the high priest. So before the high priest can enter God's presence, he has to make offerings for himself. He has to sacrifice the bull for his sin um, and the sin of his family. And this is mentioned actually twice in verse 11 to underline it's important. You have to deal with sin if you're going to come into God's presence. He then takes some of the blood of the offering He's offered outside the tabernacle. He says he goes into the tabernacle, into the most holy place, um, and he takes with him coals from the altar and a special incense. He then burns um, the incense on the coals that he's carrying, which creates a great cloud of smoke. And there's a bit of a debate of why, what was that about? Was it to hide him from the presence of God? Because truly being in the presence of God can be devastating. Um, was it a, an image of, of worship and prayer? They're not sure, but that's what he had to do as he went in. And then what he did is he took blood and he sprinkled it on the mercy seat. Now the mercy seat, we've got that picture for it. The mercy seat, there's, there's the artist rendering of the Ark of the Covenant, which is what was in the most holy place. And the bit on the top between the two angels there, between the cherubim, Looking down is the mercy seat where the, 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 the presence of God would be. And so blood would have to go on the mercy seat to cover the, um, the sin of the high priest as he went into it. And he had to sprinkle it. It says seven times. Now seven in the Bible is, uh, is a number of God. It's also a number of completeness. Seven days of creation. And so that seven times is a completeness of what he had to do. So he had to sprinkle blood on there. And what happens is in the ark, you had um, the Ten Commandments. You had the manna that God provided in heaven. You also had Aaron's staff, which budded, which you read about later in Numbers. But that went in there. And all of those things are provisions and acts of God. But they're also done in the face of human rebellion. If you read those stories, the people of Israel don't come off good. And so you have... God's, uh, you have man's rebellion represented there, the gracious provision of God, but the blood covers it. The blood covers it, and when God looks down, he sees the blood, and uh, a relationship can be um, tamed. So that's what he does first. And then, moving out, chapters 15, uh, 16, 17, 18, 19, is he then kills one of the goats, because the lots were chosen, one of them, and that's the offering for the sin for the people of Israel. So the high priest has dealt with his sin. 
He now has to deal with the sin of the people. And the same thing happens. He goes back in and he takes the blood of the goat and he sprinkles it on the mercy seat. So there is atonement for the sin of the people as well as the sin um, of the high priest. And then moving out of the tabernacle, he then purifies the tabernacle by sprinkling blood on the tabernacle itself plus all the items of furniture. There was a table of the showbread. There was the altar of incense. There was the candle, uh, the lampstand. And then you come out and there was the labor for washing and then there was the sacrificial altar. And so as he moves out away from God's presence, there is purification from sin because the presence of God dwelt in the camp of Israel and there was probably as much as a million people outside camp, the nation of Israel. And the fact that God dwelt in the presence of sinful men and women, that had to be dealt with. So actually even the holy places were tainted by sin. So they had to be purified on, um, on the Day of Atonement as well. So there was sin for the people. There was sin for the high priest dealt with, but there was also the purification of this holy place um, because it was dwelt among uh, the midst of sinful men and women. Then if we go to verses 20 to 22, we have the scapegoat, which is coming back to Azazel, which is there. Now, what we had was there were the two goats that were brought from the offerings from the people, and a lot was cast, and one was chosen for the sacrifice we've talked about, was killed, and the blood was sprinkled. The other one... Now, that one was the scapegoat, and it's often referred to as Azazel, which is a Hebrew word, and the reason it says it in our Bible is they don't know what it means. So there's a kind of a debate, what, what actually does it mean? There's, some people say it's a, it's a compound word of the, word, the Hebrew word for goat and the verb to go away. It's the go away goat. That's, that's one thing. But we often refer it to English, we have a, where our word scapegoat, and we kind of know what that means, where a scapegoat is someone who takes the punishment for somebody else but that's what happens so you've got these two goats and the high priest was to put his hands on the head of the the go away goat and he was to confess the sins of the people of Israel he was to confess the sins of the people of Israel all the things they had done and then that goat was then taken outside the camp and sent away it was led out into the wilderness and the wilderness was a place of kind of separation from God and that was out and tradition says that often it was thrown from a cliff so it could not return to the camp and what you have there is a picture of what God is doing through the day of atonement you have the death of one goat so sin is being paid for but then you also have the removal of guilt and shame and sin by being taken out of the camp and so sin, God is completely dealing with sin through the day of atonement and it reminds us of that uh, verse in Psalm 103 where it says As far as the east is from the west, that's how far you've taken my sin from me. And so the the goat leaving the camp and going our way is a picture of God's removal from sin from the people of God. So sin's been paid for, but also sin's been removed from them. And they've been dealt with and they've been freed from its power and presence in their lives. And so that's what we got there. And then we have the final instructions, verses 23, 28. Having done all that... With the people of God, it says uh, that Aaron then bathes again and he puts back on his priestly robes. So he comes back into his office as the high priest wears the garment. He then offers burnt offerings for himself and the people. And we saw the burnt offering from our first one when we looked at chapters 1, 2, 3, 5, 6, 7. The burnt offering was an act of devotion. It was an act of worship. It was costly worship. It's where you gave something of yourself fully and completely to the Lord. So these offerings were burnt and completely consumed. And it was an act of praise and dedication for the people of God. of Saying, thank you God for dealing with our sin. 
dealing with the greatest problem we have as humans is our separation from our creator. And these, um, these, uh, these animals were then killed as the burnt offering, burnt. And it was said in um, chapters 1 when we looked at this that it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And then we also find out about the guy, the, the man who had to go and lead the goat out into the wilderness. Before he came back in the camp, he also had to be washed and cleansed as well, that he was coming back into the camp in amongst God people. And then there's final little bits of opinion about just dealing with all the, the leftovers from the offerings that had to be uh, kind of consumed and dealt with. And then the final few verses of the chapter. So that's what happens on the Day of Atonement. That's what it has. And then when we get to chapters 29 and 34, we find out that this is a permanent statute for God's people. It was to take place on the 10th day of the 7th month, which is roughly somewhere between the middle of September and the middle of October, around there, um, the, the scholars tell us. And it was something to be happen permanently. Actually, it's said three times in the space of about five verses. Permanent, permanent, permanent. That means you must do this every year. It was to be an annual event for the people of God. And bear in mind, God's giving it to him for the first time. He says, so henceforth... You will do this every single year. This is what needs to happen. And regardless of what day of the week that seventh day of the month would be, uh, sorry, tenth day of the month, tenth day of the seventh month, um, it would be considered a Sabbath. And if you read there, in my translation, it says that they were to afflict themselves. They were to afflict themselves. Um, other words, um, different translations use different words. But the wording there is that on that day, the people of God were to afflict themselves before the Lord, which really means to humble themselves. It's the same word that was used when they were in captivity in Egypt. They would humble themselves. It was commonly interpreted to mean fasting and prayer. And so it was a day of great solemnness. It's a day of great seriousness, something you had to take very personally because basically there was no work, but also you didn't eat. And so there was a day of confession of sin, fasting from food, praying to God and worship. And this is what would happen to the people of God. So this day was a significant event in kind of the, the calendar of the people of Israel. People were to get serious about their sin, get serious about getting right with God. And it didn't just apply to the people of God. It even makes a comment there that actually if there are foreigners who dwell among you, and we know from the story of the people of God, there were people who joined them from other nations and they became worshippers of the one true God and got kind of pulled into the nation of Israel. They it applied to them as well. Anyone visiting from another place, they too had to do it. It was a great thing for the nation of Israel. The whole people had to take part. And it underlines the importance of atonement and the importance of need of it, the important needs of sin being dealt with and getting right with God. And if we go to the final verse of the chapter... It says this, and this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made by the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And then the great line at the end, and Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. So there was a response of obedience to the Lord's command. So the beginning of the chapter is the Lord speaking. This is what you're going to do. And the end of the chapter is Aaron and Moses doing what Lord had commanded them to do. So there was a response of faith and obedience apart from them. So that's the Day of Atonement, Leviticus uh, chapter 16. If you missed the video, go and have a look at that. That will help as well. Um, but what I want to look at now is how this points forward to Jesus. 
Because you were, if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian any time, attended churches, you're like, we don't do any of that. <laughs> that doesn't happen. There isn't a day of the year where this kind of thing happens and there's blood and stuff like that. So why is that about? Well, let's look at Jesus and point forward to him. So three things um, about Jesus. Actually, no, there's only two. Look at that. It's a strange sermon, isn't it? Isn't it three? Oh, man, there's only two. All right, first one. Jesus is our perfect high priest. Jesus is our perfect high priest. He is both fully man and fully God. Aaron, the high priest, was the mediator between man and God. He was the one who went into the presence of God and took the blood. He was the one who came out to the people. He was that. But Jesus is our perfect high priest. He can enter the presence of God because he is sinless. He doesn't need to offer sacrifice for his sin. He is perfect. And also, he ministers forever in that place. If you want to know anything about kind of the outworking of um, some of these Old Testament laws and rituals into the New Testament, the New Covenant, the place to go is Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. We actually preached for it a number of years ago, so there's all that stuff online. But that's where you go. It says in Hebrews 7, 25, Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to serve the uttermost for those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is our permanent mediator. Aaron was temporary because he died. And so did the next one and the next one and the next one. Jesus didn't. He will live forever. Also, as our mediator, as our perfect high priest, he knows us intimately because he lived among us as one of us. And it says in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What's more, Jesus didn't just enter an earthly tent in a particular time, in a particular place. He entered the heavenly presence of God as he ascended into heaven, as God the Son. It says, Hebrews 9, For Christ has entered into, not, into holy places made with hands, tabernacle, temple, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So when we think about the Day of Atonement, we think of the role of Aaron and what he does. Actually, it all points forward to Jesus, who was our great and ultimate high priest, who was one who could go into the presence of God without ritual because he was, he was God, and he was sinless and perfect and, and could enter there. Second thing is Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. He is our perfect sacrifice. Jesus didn't need to sacrifice to enter the presence of God. He was the sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. He was the sacrifice once for all time. The big reason why we don't do that anymore is because Jesus covered it. The blood of bulls and goats were temporary. That's why they had to do it every year. And then on top of that, they had the sin offerings and the guilt offerings, all the other things that had to be added. Jesus died once and it was done. Job done because he was our perfect sacrifice. He was our perfect atonement. He was the one who paid the price for sin. He's the one who reconciled us to God so that we don't have to do this over again and again. We just go to Jesus. He's the one who calls us, and by faith in him, Jesus is also the scapegoat. He was the one who was taken outside the walls of the city into the wilderness. He was nailed on a cross. He bore the pain and the punishment for our sin. What's the word? His father turned his face away. 
because Jesus bore it. He was the one sent outside. He was the one who was removed. He completely and totally filled, fulfilled sorry, the day of atonement in every way. Every aspect of it points to Jesus. Hebrews 7, 27 says, He, Jesus, has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifice daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did, did this once for all when he offered up himself. Hebrews 10, 12 says, But when Christ had offered all things, sorry, for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. When you sit down, when you sit down, job done. All completed. Jesus sat down. He was the perfect sacrifice. He completed everything. And in our Gospels, there's an image that we look at that kind of sums this up. comes up in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 27. When Jesus is dying on the cross outside the city walls in the wilderness, bearing uh, the punishment we deserve, and he cries out to God, why have you forsaken me? And then he cries out, it is finished. What happens in the temple? The curtain the veil, the separation from the most holy place, the place where God's presence is, you can't go in there unless you're the high priest. And then only once a year, that veil, that curtain is ripped. And where to get ripped from? Top to bottom. God says, no, done. And so the way now is open to God. We can come back to him. We can come back in relationship, but only through Jesus, only through his sacrifice, only through what he has done for us. Only he brings atonement. Only he is the perfect high priest. Only he is the great mediator between man and God. So what does that mean for us here and now? What do we, how do we respond to that? Three things. We're back to three now. Three things. Everything's good. First one, sin is a big deal. Sin is a big deal. Just look at the Day of Atonement, what they had to do. And they had to repeat it every year. And that was on top of the sin and the guilt offerings we looked at in uh, chapter 6 and 7. They had to deal with sin. There had to be sacrifice. And the reason we did, sin needs to be dealt with is it's so serious before a holy God. And sin covers the area of life. Sin is not just a Bible word used for things that we'd really like to do, but maybe we shouldn't. Sin covers everything that is offensive to the creator of heaven and earth who made us. It is everything that is offensive um, to him. It is all the things we do, the sins of commission, the things we do and we lie and we cheat and we steal and we backbite and we do all those vicious, cruel things. It's the sins of omission, which are all the good things that we should have done that we didn't do, like when we're gracious and kind and forgiving and we choose not to do them. We choose to walk away from them. It covers our thoughts and our words and our deeds. It's, called, it's when we cross a known line, a barrier, when we transgress. When you say transgression, that's crossing a line. Don't go here, you can go there. And we cross and say, no, we don't want it. It talks about rebellion against God, against his commands. It's all about missing the mark. God's mark is perfection and we just fall short constantly. It's about the inside pollution that we have, our iniquities, which are the things that are in us that come out of us. People foolishly think, well, if I remove myself from this situation, I'll be fine. There's no way I can muck up. No, you're the problem. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human 
heart. You take the problem with you everywhere. That's what it's like. And out of you vomit sin in your attitudes and your actions and your words. It's a big deal. And the, the Day of Atonement points to this, but what also points to it? The cross of Christ. The only way it gets dealt with is with God himself comes to earth, lives as a man, endures all the pain and suffering of what that is, then dies on a cross in our place. Finally, it's dealt with. Sin is a big deal. And so when we as believers talk about it or think about it in our lives, we can often quickly jump to the end, which we'll get to, and that's all great news. But actually, sin is bad news. Sin isn't good. Sin will still destroy you, even if you're a believer and a follower of Jesus. I know I've watched it. Been in pastoral ministry nearly 20 years now, and I've people seen Christians, professors of faith, followers of Jesus, wreck their lives with sin because they didn't think it was a big enough deal to deal with the problems, deal with what's happening, and it just blossoms and grows in our lives. Let's keep sin in perspective. We should be humble ourselves. When we look at what happened to Israel on that day, it says they were to afflict themselves. They were to become low. They were to confess their sin, cry out to God for mercy, be humble. Even the high priest, you can't wear those flash garments. Uh -uh. You come just clad in white. That's what you're going to do. Second thing, it's going to get better, seriously. We're going to tip up for the end. Number two, sin has been fully dealt with by Jesus. I was hoping for a little bit. (laughs) Yes! Okay, the first one is still valid. Second one is, is also valid. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, his ascension is to heaven. He is now ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. Sin has been dealt with. That is much of what the New Testament is about. The writers just reminding us sin has been dealt with. We can have it. We can come into relationship with Jesus by faith. We can confess our sins. He can forgive us. We can repent, turn around. And we can be free from the consequences of sin punishment from God we can now walk into the holy presence of God actually wherever we are we don't need to go to a place to a tent to a building and go inside we can do it wherever we are in this room in a school hall that's frankly a little bit messy sometimes when we come it doesn't matter because we can come into the presence of God we are now the temple of God ourselves we're the living stones the, temp, the, 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 the veil's ripped. We can go right in. We can enjoy it. We can live in peace and harmony of God. Not only that, God comes to dwell in us, with us, by his spirit. We've been transformed. You were dead, it says. Now you're alive. You've been born again. We sang about that. For the life that's been reborn. We, we can do that. We can enjoy it. And that is a great truth. That's what we proclaim to the world. Sin has been dealt with in Christ. You can come to know him. Third and final thing. We are now to live lives of repentance and faith. We're now to live lives of repentance and faith. We acknowledge sin is a problem. We acknowledge Jesus has dealt with it. We don't stop there. That sometimes we stop there. That's it. No, we now respond in repentance and faith and worship. I love what they did at the end of the Day of Atonement. I'd, almost, I'd miss it sometimes. It's too much about blood sprinkling and sin being dealt with. But what happens at the end? Burnt offering, which is an offering of worship and praise and saying, thank you, God, for dealing with the problem. And that's what God built that in. You get to worship at the end. You get to pray. You get to shout and say, that was amazing. 
I wonder what it was like after a day of fasting and prayer and confession and finally the priest has done what he's got to do and the scapegoat's gone, sin's gone. Yes! We get to worship. We get to say, God, you're amazing. We get to sing psalms and hymns. It's brilliant. And so that's what we're to do. Now, if you're not a believer here, you don't know Jesus, we love you. We're glad you're here. You need to respond. You need to put your faith and trust in him. You need to say, Jesus, I, I, I'm a sinner. I've failed you. I've fallen short, but I choose to repent of my sin, which just means turn around, to put my faith and trust in you, to follow you all the days of my life. And if you're a believer here, we need to live lives of repentance and faith, recognizing one sin's a big deal, but Jesus has dealt with it, but he still says to us, you need to deal with it on a regular basis. 1 John 1, 1.9 says, if we, see, if we say we have no sins, we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. But if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just. He will forgive our sins. There's the atonement bit. And he will cleanse us. So not only is he dealt with the sin, he's removed it from us. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what we're to do. We're to live those lives. We're to forgive others who offend us, people who are, who've maybe hurt us because we know God's forgiven us. We need to forgive them. We're to live lives of thankful worship, overflowing in praise. We don't reserve that for just 20 minutes on a Sunday morning. I'll go a bit gung-ho there. If I'm really feeling good, the hands come up, and then leave it. It's a life of worship. It's a life of praise. It's great gratitude and thankfulness every day in every aspect. It's good to gather and hear stories, but it's also good to go out there and live our life wherever we find ourselves, praising God and giving thanks to him. Whatever it is, it's to live life of faith, trusting God. We've trusted God for our salvation. We've trusted God for what Jesus uh, did in Christ on the cross. We're to now trust him in all areas of our lives. How he's going to provide for us, where he's going to lead us, how he's going to look after our families and all those kind of things. We choose to trust him and we do that by studying his word reading that, praying over that. Are you reading through Mark as we're doing Christmas to the cross? I'm totally lost on what chapter seven this week, something like that. Check the texts, they'll come out. We're to pray for the sick and say, God, God's got plans for you. We wanna pray for you, we love you. We do all these things to respond in faith to him. Amen. I'm gonna stop there, I could just keep ranting. Okay, let's stand up, stand up, grab your your little cup.